Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell, and we are learning the third section of Parshat Naso today. Today we will begin studying Parashat Sota, the story of the Sota woman, which we'll explain as we go through the Psukim. We'll be covering a very short section today because there's a lot of details here. We will be covering uh, in the fifth chapter from the 11th Pasuk, where we let off yesterday, till the end of the 18th Pasuk. And this year, once again, we will need to read line by line in order to understand and pay attention to all of the details. Daber Adonai el Moshe lemor, Daber el Bnei Yisrael ve'amarta lehem, ish ish kitiste ishto ma'ala vo ma'al. Then Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife, if any man's, translating from ish ish, if any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has intercourse with her, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act. We will see different translations of the final at the end of the second pasuk. But now we will begin again from the beginning of verse 12. Ki tiste, the Rashbam explains, ki tasur, going, acting waywardly, going off the path. The more interesting words here, though, in this pasuk are umma'ala vo ma'al. The wife's, the wife's actions are described with the words umma'ala vo ma'al. And the word mi'ila again takes us back to the asham gzelot, the asham brought for theft, which we previously learned about, and we saw the words there, lim'ol ma'al bahashem. In asham gzelot, we described a sin that has two components, an interpersonal component, ben adam in the actual act of theft, and a ben adam makom component, between man and God component, that is in the sense that he took an oath, in God's name, a false oath. Here too, Rashi comments on the repetitive term ish ish, which we translated any man, but Rashi comments on the, the double term ish ish, that she has sinned against two men, as it were, God, who is called a man of war, so God is the man, as if, and to her man, her husband. So therefore, Rashi too is explaining that there is a dual sin in what is being described in our section, interpersonal sin and a, a sin between man and God. Okay, so what in our section is umma'alavo ma'al? What is the sin of mi'ilah here? So we have previously explained that the sin of mi'ilah is benefiting from something prohibited because it's divine. Benefiting from something that belongs to the mikdash, or in the case of asham gzilot, one taking an oath in God's name in order to hold on to something that does not belong to him is benefiting from God's name. If we've briefly seen in the two, three psukim that we've read that we are discussing a potential act of adultery, then how does that definition of mi'ilah relate to the case at hand? Is it the man who is benefiting, benefiting from a prohibited married woman? But the verse describes that the woman is the one who commits mi'ilah. Is it the fact that the woman facilitates a prohibited benefit? Rasag, Rabbeinu Sa'adya Gaon, comments, 
Hefera emunata imo verimtauto. She has breached his trust and deceived him. This resonates within the false oath of Hashem Gzilot. There one has breached God's trust. Limol ma'al bahashem. And here she has potentially breached her husband's trust. Umaala bo ma'al. In what way then has she breached his trust? The next verse explains. Veshachav ish ota shichvat zera. Shichvat zera refers to semen. And then in the continuation of the pasuk it says, Vihinitma, she became impure. Some might understand the term of tum'ah, impurity, as a judgment of sin, as tum'ah is at times is, is used in the Torah. However, it is possible that it refers to a technical definition of the act. The way the Torah tells us we are not discussing merely inappropriate extramarital behavior, but actual intercourse, is to use the two terms, shichvat zera, semen on the one hand, and tum'ah, impurity, on the other hand. As we learned at the end of Parshat Mitzrah, the woman becomes impure for one day from sexual intercourse. So describing that she's impure is telling us that there was actual sexual intercourse. However, we understand the use of the term Tumah, it connects us to the previous section of sending away impure people from the camp, which might give us some sort of idea as to what this section is actually doing in uh, our parasha. The Torah then says, V'ne'elam me'inei isha v'nistara. It's an important grammatical point to point out the term isha. Isha has, there are two words in Hebrew which are pronounced isha. The more common one, isha, alef shin hey, with no yud and no dot in the letter hey, what's called a mapik hey, means a woman. The less common one mentioned in our verse, Isha, with a Yud, anima pike, means Ish Shela, her man or her husband. So the Torah tells us, He does not know about the affair. Vinistara, she is hiding the affair. Sometimes there are affairs that a husband or a wife know about, tolerate, or even sanction. This is not the situation the Torah relates to. The Torah is discussing a secret affair. There is no witness to this affair. Rashi says if there is even one witness to the act of intercourse, the laws described in this section are not relevant. Usually the Torah demands two witnesses, and this is an instance in which one witness is sufficient. We translated, she has not been caught in the act. This is some, a, one might think, a translation to modern Hebrew, where that be nitpas means to be caught. And this means that she was not caught. That relates somewhat to the idea that there was no witness, but then that seems to be redundant. However, that's the how the Ibn Ezra explains this term. However, Rashi and Rashbam reference this term in Sefer Dvarim, Utfasa Vishachavima, a man tafas caught and, and and slept with a woman, which means a force act of intercourse, in other words, rape. Therefore, vehilonit pasa means she was not raped, rather she was a willing partner. If the woman was raped, then this parasha of sota does not relate to her. One final point about the first two verses in our section. What is the relationship between the first two verses? 
The simple understanding is we're dealing with what's called a klal and a prat. The Torah describes in general a betrayal, uma'ala bo ma'al, in verse 12, and then describes it in detail in verse 13. We're talking about an act of intercourse. The Sephorno suggests a progression. The betrayal begins in verse 12, uma'ala bo ma'al, with inappropriate extramarital behavior, kissing and hugging, with no intercourse. But subsequently, this behavior digresses into a full-blown affair with intercourse. We will now continue reading the next verse. We are in verse 14. If a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, when she has not defiled herself. So now the husband wants to do something about this situation. Some sort of jealousy has come over him, and he wants to determine what is going on. Now, this is very a very important transformation has taken place in verse 14. In verses 12 and 13, a clear finger of blame was pointed at the wife. She committed mi'ilah. She had intercourse with another man. Verse 14 is the first time that the Torah raises the possibility that perhaps she had an affair or perhaps she did not. The, the Sforno takes this point further by stating that although Ruach Hina, the spirit of jealousy, is mentioned twice in the verse, the first is a spirit of purity that stems from a good place and the second a foolish spirit that caused them to be jealous for no good reason. So in the next verse, we'll read about the procedure that the husband and the potentially wayward wife will take as a result of this situation. But before we do that, and before we see the procedure, we have to ask the question, is there a line that the wife must cross in order to warrant this process, this procedure? The simple read of the verse is that the husband becomes jealous of his wife with no actual knowledge of any wrongdoing. He suspects and therefore, he can begin this whole process that we are about to read about. Or read about. However, Chazal take a very clear approach that two concrete events have to take place. One, the husband has warned his wife, do not be alone with a specific man. They take the term vekine et ishto, not as a something that's in his mind, but an actual act. He has to warn her, do not be alone with this man. From the word vinistara, the Chazal believe that it is known that she disregarded the warning and she was alone with that man. How do we know that this is known? According to Sam and Chazal, there were actual two witnesses that she was alone with the man, or there was one witness according to a different opinion, or the husband himself knows. They're different halachic opinions, but it is known that she was alone with the man. So these are two very different approaches. The following verses describe a very degrading procedure to the woman. Can a man on a whim put his wife through this degrading process? According to the simple reading, perhaps. However, according to the halachic read of the verses, the answer is a resounding no. There must be a justified reason to go through this process. But this question of whether there is reason for to suspect or it is a whim of the husband also has an impact on how we read this entire parasha. Is the woman to blame from the outset? That depends. Does the husband have grounds to suspect her? As Chazal believed, she was alone with a man that she was warned not to be alone with? Or is this merely a whim of the husband, and then maybe the wife 
has no blame at all in the situation. We now move on to verse 15. The man shall then bring his wife to the Kohen and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an efa of barley meal. He shall not pour oil on it nor put frankincense on it. From here on in we'll call the frankincense livona as the Hebrew term. For it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of sin, of inequity. So we begin the verse, The man, the husband is active, the woman is passive. He brings, masculine, et korbana aleha. He brings her offering, feminine, the man brings her sacrifice. This is a bit confusing. The man is bringing, but it's her sacrifice. Why? The Chizkuni says she is wicked, again, prejudging the woman, predetermining the woman as being guilty, and her sacrifice is unacceptable. So it is his sacrifice, for what? To atone for himself that he didn't stop her when he initially saw inappropriate behavior. This explanation is a difficult one because the Torah explicitly calls it her offering, not his. Perhaps the man brings it because he is the driving force behind this endeavor, and or because the woman is meant to be passive, so she can't do anything. So what is the offering? Asirit ha'ifa kemach. This already is a term that we're familiar with from Sefer this is a mincha, a grain offering, as the continuation of the Pasuk says. However, this mincha is different in three ways. Number one, it's asirit haifa kemach seorim, not wheat, not solet, as is usually a mincha offering. There's no oil and no livona. The Torah explains why. The Torah says that it is a sin offering. What is special about barley? Why barley? Rashi says that barley is an animal food and the woman has done an act of an animal. The Ramban claims that barley denotes a storm and he makes a, an alliteration between seora and seara and it denotes a storm and a punishment as in Gidon's dream prophesying the destruction of the Midianite camp in the book of Judges when a cake of barley rolls into their camp. There's no oil and no livona. Rashi here explains this as well, as this relates to the unique state of the Sota woman, and therefore there's no oil and no levona. However, if we remember what we learned in Sefer Vayikra in the fifth chapter, with regard to the Ole Viore sin offering, a destitute man who can afford neither sheep nor birds may bring a grain offering as a sin offering. There too, the Torah says that it should be without oil or levona. So, in other words, a mincha, which is a voluntary gift to God, should be presented as a gift with oil and levona. But when a grain offering is a sin offering, it is not relevant to package it as a gift with oil and levona. Therefore, there's nothing unique necessarily about this sota grain offering. It is a sin offering that has no oil and levona, like the mincha of the olev yored. 
We now move to verse 16. Then the priest shall bring her near and have her stand before Hashem. In the English translation, we have to make a decision what means. But in fact, in the Hebrew, it's a cryptic pasuk. It refers to a feminine object as opposed to a masculine object that the Kohen is offering. The Ibn Ezra says that it refers to the mincha, v'hikriv otah hakohen, refers to what was mentioned in the previous pasuk, the mincha offering. That's a logical conclusion. If we're using the term v'hikriv, one is offering, so one offers a offering. And that would be the mincha. However, as we mentioned in the, in the English translation, is different. We have seen the objectification of the woman in our section. And it is possible that she is being offered, she is being bought, brought forward, and she is being stood up before God. This appears to be the Chizkuni's explanation. In other places in the Torah, we find humans as being an offered object, even if they are not actually being sacrificed. In the seven days of Miluim, Moshe is constantly offering the Kohanim. Vayakrev Moshe et Aharon vet banav. Moshe offered Aharon and his sons. Vayakrev Moshe et Bnei Aharon. Moshe offered Aharon's sons. Vayakrev et Bnei Aharon. In the identical language used to describe the bringing of an animal offering in the exact same section. Vayakrev et Korban Ha'am. Moshe offered the sacrifice to the nation. Vayakrev et Ha'ola. Moshe offered the Ola offering, etc. So it is very possible then that the term vihikriv ota does refer to the woman and not to the mincha offering. We'll discuss this a little bit further in the following psukim. Verse 17. Vilakach hakohen maim kedoshim bichli hares umin he'afar asher yihye bekarka hamishkan yikach hakohen venatan el hamaim. And then the Kohen shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel, and he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the Mishkan and put it into the water. So holy, holy water is put into an earthenware vessel, Klicheris. The Ramban explains that this symbolizes that she will be broken like pottery. Once again, the Ramban, like others we have seen, is predetermining the guilt of the woman here. Afar, the dust... The Ramban says this alludes to the pasuk, the verse said about Adam Harishon, ki afar atavel afar tashuv. You are dust, you are from dust, and you will return to dust, and she will return to dust, alluding to her ultimate death. Verse 18. The Kohen shall then have the woman stand before Hashem and let the hair of the woman's head go loose and place the grain offering of memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in the hand of the Kohen is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. The words Hashem seem to be repetitive of what we already read in verse 16. This seems to support the Ibn Ezra's approach in verse 16, which we said was that the, the subject of verse 16 was the mincha and not the woman. Because if the object of verse 16 was the woman and not the grain offering, this verse explicitly referring, referring to the woman is apparently redundant. 
According to the Chizkuni, we have to offer an explanation as to why this was done twice or why the Torah repeated it. The objectification of the woman continues quite strongly in this verse. The, the Kohen stands her up. He does something to the head of the woman, which we'll be discussing shortly. She does not take her offering, but it is placed on her hands. We said that this is an unclear term, and especially when we compare it to other uses of the term. After the death of Nadav Avihu, Moshe commands the Kohanim that survived, Rashechem al Tifra'u. Your heads should not be Peresh Ain. Regarding the Mitzorah, it says, Virosho yiye parua. His head should be parua. Regarding the Nazir, it says, Gadel pera se'ar rosho. The Nazir is commanded to grow his hair. As appears, is what the Mitzorah, as some sign of mourning, is commanded to do. In contrast, seemingly the Kohanim are commanded not to grow their hair as a sign of mourning. So when the Torah says that the Kohen is to ufara et rosh haisha, is the Sota woman commanded to grow her hair? How is that something that the Kohen could do to the woman? And how is it done on the spot? Both Rashi and Ibn Ezra understand this to be the uncovering of her head, revealing her hair or letting it run wild because it is no longer held together nicely. On this basis, we should suggest that the word para does not actually mean to grow one's hair, but to let it be unkempt, untidy. The Nazir grows his hair, thus his hair is untidy. So too the Mitzorah. For the Mitzorah, as we said, it's a sign of mourning. The Kohanim, after the death of Nadav and Avihu, and the Kohen Gadol as well, are commanded to keep their hair tidy and not to let their hair become unkempt. In our case, the Kohen is commanded to make the woman's hair unkempt or untidy. This cannot be accomplished by growing her hair, but rather by uncovering her hair, taking apart a head covering, or undoing a hairdo. In any case, this is clearly a degrading act. Final three words describing the water which the Kohen is holding, may hamarim hamarim, literally, the bitter and cursed water. Until now, we read about holy water put into a clay pottery vessel, an earthen vessel, mixed with dirt or dust from the ground of the Mishkan. So that is the water. Why is it bitter? How is it cursed? Rashi claims that if the holy water, it's holy water, Maim Kedoshim, we read, then it cannot be cursed. Me'ararim, Rashi claims, therefore means malignant, which begs the same question. What is malignant about the water? But why exactly the water is named as such, how it gains those qualities, and what exactly is done with the water, we're going to learn in tomorrow's section. We'll conclude today's section with a brief discussion of why is this section in our parasha. It seems to belong in Sefer Vayikra. We're talking about a korban. We're talking about an offer, an activity of offering in the Mishkan. So how does it relate to our parasha? We already pointed out that we use the term tum'ah, impurity in this section. 
It might have had a technical reason, but it related back to the mitzvah that we learned previously in our parasha of sending away the impure people out of the machaneh. As we've learned, the machaneh is a holy machaneh. The mishkan is in the center of the machaneh. And this demands reaction. It demands the Levi'im protecting the mishkan. It demands that we send away impure people from the machaneh. But apparently, what we're seeing from the continuity, the continuation of our parasha, that it demands a high moral standard. And this means that if there is an affair, inappropriate behavior going on between a husband and a wife, between a wife and another man, that this needs to be dealt with because of the machaneh that B'nai Israel are living in is to be pure and holy, then sinful activity cannot be tolerated, not only in society in general, but more so within this machaneh that is forming around the Mishkan. And with this, we conclude our today's section. Tomorrow, we will conclude the parasha of Sotah.